Chapter Twenty One, Part One of Etiquette. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laurie Ann Walden. Etiquette in Society, in Business, in Politics, and at Home by Emily Post. Chapter Twenty One, Part One. First Preparations Before a Wedding. To begin with, before deciding the date of the wedding, the bride's mother must find out definitely on which day the clergyman who is to perform the ceremony is disengaged, and make sure that the church is bespoken for no other service. If it is to be an important wedding, she must also see that the time available for the church is also convenient to the caterer. Sundays and days in Lent are not chosen for weddings and Friday, being a fast day in Catholic and very high Episcopal churches, weddings on that day, if not forbidden, are never encouraged. But the superstition that Friday and the month of May are unlucky is too stupid to discuss. Having settled upon a day and hour, the next step is to decide the number of guests that can be provided for, which is determined by the size of the church and the house, and the type of reception intended. THE INVITATIONS The bride-elect and her mother then go to the stationer and decide details, such as size and texture of paper and style of engraving, for the invitations. The order is given at once for the engraving of all the necessary plates, and probably for the full number of house invitations, especially if to a sit-down breakfast where the guests are limited. There are also ordered a moderate number of general church invitations or announcements, which can be increased later when the lists are completed and the definite number of guests more accurately known. Her mother consults his mother. The bride's mother then consults with the groom, or more likely with his mother, as to how the house list is to be divided between them. This never means a completely doubled list, because if the two families live in the same city, many names are sure to be in duplicate. If the groom's people live in another place, invitations to the house can be liberally sent, as the proportion of guests who will take a long trip seldom go beyond those of the immediate family, and such close friends as would be asked to the smallest of receptions. Usually, if Mrs. Smith tells Mrs. Smartlington that two hundred can be included at the breakfast, Mrs. Smith and Mrs. Smartlington will each make a list of one hundred and fifty, certain that one hundred will be in duplicate. Invitations to a big church wedding are always sent to the entire visiting list, and often the business acquaintances of both families, no matter how long the combined number may be, or whether they can by any chance be present or not. Even people in deep mourning are included, as well as those who live thousands of miles away, as the invitations not merely proffer hospitality, but are messengers carrying the news of the marriage. After a house-wedding, or a private ceremony where invitations were limited to relatives and closest personal friends of the young couple, general announcements are sent out to the entire visiting list. How the wedding list is compiled Those who keep their visiting list in order have comparatively little work, but those who are not in the habit of entertaining on a general scale, and yet have a large unassorted visiting list, will have quite a piece of work ahead of them, and cannot begin making it soon enough. In the cities where a social register or other visiting book is published, 
people of social prominence find it easiest to read it through, marking XX in front of the names to be asked to the house, and another mark, such as a dash, in front of those to be asked to the church only, or to have announcements sent them. Other names which do not appear in the printed list may be written as thought of at the top or bottom of pages. In country places and smaller cities, or where a published list is not available or of sufficient use, the best assistant is the telephone book. List-making should be done over as long a period and for as short sessions as possible, in order that each name as it is read may bring to memory any other that is similar. Long reading at a time robs the repetition of names of all sense, so that nothing is easier than to pass over the name of a friend without noticing it. A word of warning. To leave out old friends because they are neither rich nor fashionable, and to include comparative strangers because they are of great social importance, not alone shows a want of loyalty and proper feeling, but is to invite the contempt of those very ones whom such snobbery seeks to propitiate. Four lists, therefore, are combined in sending out wedding invitations. The bride and the groom make one each of their own friends, to which is added the visiting list of the bride's family, made out by her mother or other near relative, and the visiting list of the groom's family, made out by his mother or a relative. Each name is clearly marked, of course, whether for house or church invitation. When the four lists are completed, it is the duty of someone to arrange them into a single one by whatever method seems most expedient. When lists are very long, the compiling is usually one by a professional secretary, who also addresses the envelopes, encloses the proper number of cards, and seals, stamps, and posts the invitations. The address of a professional secretary can always be furnished by the stationer. Very often, especially where lists do not run into inordinate length, the envelopes are addressed and the invitations sent out by the bride herself and some of her friends who volunteer to help her. THE MOST ELABORATE WEDDING POSSIBLE This is the huge wedding of the daughter of ultra-rich and prominent people in a city such as New York, or more probably a high noon wedding out of town. The details would in either case be the same, except that the country setting makes necessary the additional provision of a special train which takes the guests to a station, where they are met by dozens of motors and driven to the church. Later they are driven to the house, and later again to the returning special train. Otherwise, whether in the city or the country, the church, if Protestant, is decorated with masses of flowers in some such elaborateness as standards, or arches, or hanging garlands in the church itself, as well as the floral embellishment of the chancel. The service is conducted by a bishop or other distinguished clergyman, with assistant clergymen, and accompanied by a full choral service, possibly with the addition of a celebrated opera soloist. The costumes of the bride and her maids are chosen with painstaking attention to perfection, and with seeming disregard of cost. Later, at the house, there is not only a floral bower under which the bridal couple receive, but every room has been turned into a veritable woodland or garden, so massed are the plants and flowers. An orchestra, or two, so that the playing may be without intermission, is hidden behind palms, in the hall or wherever is most convenient. A huge canopied platform is built on the lawn or added to the veranda, or built out over the yard of a city house, 
and is decorated to look like an enclosed formal garden. It is packed with small tables, each seating four, six, or eight, as the occasion may require. THE AVERAGE FASHIONABLE WEDDING The more usual fashionable wedding is merely a modification of the one outlined above. The chancel of the church is decorated exactly the same, but except in summer when garden flowers are used, there is very little attempted in the body of the church, other than sprays of flowers at the ends of the ten to twenty reserved pews, or possibly only at the ends of the first two pews, and the two that mark the beginning of the ribbon section. There is often a choral service and a distinguished officiating clergyman. The costumes of bride and bridesmaids are usually the same in effect, though they may be less lavish in detail. The real difference begins at the breakfast, where probably a hundred guests are invited, or two hundred at most, instead of from five hundred to a thousand, and except for the canopied background against which the bride and groom receive, there is very little floral decoration of the house. If a tent is built, it is left as it is, a tent, with perhaps some standard trees at intervals to give it a decorated appearance. The tables, even that of the bride, their garniture, the service, and the food are all precisely the same, the difference being in the smaller number of guests provided for. A small wedding. A small wedding is merely a further modification of the two preceding ones. Let us suppose it is a house wedding in a moderate-sized house. A prayer bench has been placed at the end of the drawing-room or living-room. Back of it is a screen or bower of palms or other greens. One decoration thus serves for chancel and background at the reception. A number of small tables in the dining-room may seat perhaps twenty or even fifty guests, besides the bride's table placed in another room. If the bride has no attendance, she and the groom choose a few close friends to sit at the table with them. Or, at a smaller wedding, there is a private marriage in a little chapel, or the clergyman reads the service at the house of the bride, in the presence of her parents and his, and a small handful of guests, who all sit down afterwards at one table for a wedding breakfast. Or there may be a greater number of guests, and a simpler collation, such as a stand-up afternoon tea, where the refreshments are sandwiches, cakes, tea, and chocolate. Breach of Etiquette for Groom to Give Wedding No matter whether a wedding is to be large or tiny, there is one unalterable rule. The reception must be either at the house of the bride's parents, or grandparents, or other relative of hers, or else in assembly rooms rented by her family. Never, under any circumstances, should a wedding reception be given at the house of the groom's family. They may give a ball or as many entertainments of whatever description they choose for the young couple after they are married, but the wedding breakfast and the trousseau of the bride must be furnished by her own side of the house. When a poor girl marries, her wedding must be in keeping with the means of her parents. It is not only inadvisable for them to attempt expenditure beyond what they can afford, but they would lay themselves open to far greater criticism through inappropriate lavishness than through meagerness of arrangement, which need not by any means lack charm because inexpensive. Wedding of a Cinderella Some years ago there was a wedding when a girl who was poor married a man who was rich, and who would gladly have given her anything she chose, the beauty of which will be remembered always by every witness, in spite of, or maybe because of, its utter lack of costliness. It was June in the country. 
The invitations were by word of mouth to neighbors and personal notes to the groom's relatives at a distance. The village church was decorated by the bride, her younger sisters, and some neighbors, with dogwood, than which nothing is more bride-like or beautiful. The shabbiness of her father's little cottage was smothered with flowers and branches cut in a neighboring wood. Her dress, made by herself, was of tarlatan covered with a layer or two of tull, and her veil was of tull fastened with a spray, as was her girdle, of natural bridal wreath and laurel leaves. Her bouquet was of trailing bridal wreath and white lilacs. She was very young, and divinely beautiful, and fresh and sweet. The tull for her dress and veil and her thin silk stockings and white satin slippers represented the entire outlay of any importance for her costume. A little sister in smock of pink sateen and a wreath and tight bouquet of pink laurel clusters toddled after her and held her bouquet, after first laying her own on the floor. The collation was as simple as the dresses of the bride and bridesmaid. A homemade wedding cake, professionally iced and big enough for everyone to take home a thick slice in waxed paper piled near for the purpose, and a white wine cup were the most pretentious offerings. Otherwise there were sandwiches, hot biscuits, cocoa, tea and coffee, scrambled eggs and bacon, ice cream and cookies, and the music was a Victrola loaned for the occasion. The bride's going-away dress was of brown holland linen, and her hat a plain little affair, as simple as her dress. Again, her only expenditure was on shoes, stockings, and gloves. Later on, she had all the clothes that money could buy, but in none of them was she ever more lovely than in her fashionless wedding dress of tarlatan and tull, and the plain little frock in which she drove away. Nor are any of the big parties that she gives today more enjoyable, though perfect in their way, than her wedding on a June day, a number of years ago. THE WEDDING HOUR The fashionable wedding hour in New York is either noon or else in the afternoon at three, three-thirty, or four o'clock, with the reception always a half-hour later. High noon, which means that the breakfast is at one o'clock, and four o'clock in the afternoon, with the reception at half-after, are the conventional hours. THE EVENING WEDDING in San Francisco, and generally throughout the West, altogether smart weddings are celebrated at nine o'clock in the evening. The details are precisely the same as those of morning or afternoon. The bride and bridesmaids wear dresses that are perhaps more elaborate and evening in model, and the bridegroom as well as all men present wear evening clothes, of course. If the ceremony is in a church, the women should wear wraps and an ornament or light scarf of some sort over their hair, as ball dresses are certainly not suitable, besides which church regulations forbid the uncovering of women's heads in consecrated places of worship. THE MORNING WEDDING To some, nine o'clock in the morning may sound rather eccentric for a wedding, but to people of the Atlantic coast it is not a bit more so than an evening hour. Less so, if anything, because morning is unconventional anyway, and etiquette, never being very strong at that hour, is not defied, but merely left quiescent. If, for any reason, such as taking an early morning train or ship, an early morning wedding might be a good suggestion. The bride should, of course, not wear satin and lace. She could wear organdy, let us hope the nine o'clock wedding is in summer, or she could wear very simple white crepe de chine. Her attendants could wear the simplest sort of morning dresses with garden hats, the groom a sack suit or flannels. 
and the breakfast, really breakfast, could consist of scrambled eggs and bacon and toast and coffee, and griddle cakes. The above is not written in ridicule. The hour would be unusual, but a simple early morning wedding where everyone is dressed in morning clothes, and where the breakfast suggests the first meal of the day, could be perfectly adorable. The evening wedding, on the other hand, lays itself open to criticism because it is a function. A function is formal, and the formal is always strictly in the province of that austere and inflexible lawmaker, etiquette. And etiquette at this moment says, Weddings on the Atlantic seaboard are celebrated not later than 4.30 o'clock in the afternoon. Wedding Presents And now let us return to the more particular details of the wedding of our especial bride. The invitations are mailed about three weeks before the wedding. As soon as they are out, the presents to the bride begin coming in, and she should enter each one carefully in her gift book. There are many published for the purpose, but an ordinary blank book, nicely bound, as she will probably want to keep it, about eight to ten inches square, will answer every purpose. The usual model spreads across the double page, as follows. Column headings, present received date, article, sent by, Sender's address, where bought, date of thanks written. First entry, received date, May 20, article, Silver Dish, sent by Mr. and Mrs. White, address, 1 Eleanor Place, where bought, Tiffany's, date of thanks written, May 20. Second entry, received date, May 21, article, 12 plates, sent by Mr. and Mrs. Green, Address, 2 North Street, where bought, Collimores, date of thanks written, May 21. All gifts as they arrive should be put in a certain room, or part of a room, and never moved away until the description is carefully entered. It will be found a great help to put down the addresses of donors, as well as their names, so that the bride may not have to waste an unnecessary moment of the overcrowded time which must be spent at her desk. THE BRIDE'S THANKS The bride who is happy in receiving a great number of presents spends every spare moment in writing her notes of thanks, which must always be written by her personally. Telephoning won't do at all, and neither will a verbal thank you so much as she meets people here and there. She must write a separate letter for each present, a by no means small undertaking. A bride of this year, whose presence, because of her family's great prominence, ran far into the hundreds, never went to bed a single night before her wedding until a note of thanks was checked against every present received that day. To those who offered to help her through her overwhelming task, she, who is supposed to be very spoiled, answered, If people are kind enough to go out and buy a present for me, I think the least I can do is to write at once and thank them. That her effort was appreciated was evident by everyone's commenting on her prompt and charming notes. Notes of thanks can be very short, but they should be written with as little delay as possible. When a present is sent by a married couple, the bride writes to the wife and thanks both. Thank you for the lovely present you and Mr. Jones sent me. Arranging the Presents not so much in an effort to parade her possessions as to do justice to the kindness of the many people who have sent them, a bride should show her appreciation of their gifts by placing each one in the position of greatest advantage. Naturally, all people's tastes are not equally pleasing to the taste of the bride, 
nor are all pocket-books equally filled. Very valuable presents are better put in close contrast with others of like quality, or others entirely different in character. Colors should be carefully grouped. Two presents, both lovely in themselves, can be made completely destructive to each other if the colors are allowed to clash. Usually china is put on one table, silver on another, glass on another, laces and linens on another. But pieces that jar together must be separated as far apart as possible, and perhaps even move to other surroundings. A crudely designed piece of silverware should not be left among beautiful examples, but be put among china ornaments, or other articles that do not reveal its lack of fineness by too direct comparison. For the same reason, imitation lace should not be put next to real, nor stoneware next to Chinese porcelain. To group duplicates is another unfortunate arrangement. Eighteen pairs of pepper-pots or fourteen sauce-boats in a row might as well be labeled, Look at this stupidity! What can she do with all of us? They are sure to make the givers feel at least a little chagrined at their choice. Cards with Presents When Mrs. Smith orders a present sent to a bride, she encloses a card reading, Mr. and Mrs. John Huntington Smith. Nearly every married woman has a plate engraved with both names, but if she hasn't, then she encloses Mr. Smith's card with hers. Some people write, All Good Wishes, or With Best Wishes, but most people send cards without messages. Delayed Presents If because of illness or absence a present is not sent until after the wedding, a short note should accompany it, giving the reason for the delay. When the presents are shown There is absolutely no impropriety in showing the presents at the wedding reception. They are always shown at country weddings, and, more often than not, at the most fashionable townhouses. The only reason for not showing them is lack of room in an apartment house. In a townhouse, an upstairs library, or even a bedroom from which all the furniture has been removed, is suitable. Tables covered with white damask, plain, tablecloths, are put like counters around the sides and down the center of the room. The cards that were sent with the gifts are sometimes removed, but there is no impropriety in leaving them on, and it certainly saves members of the family from repeating many times who sent this one and who sent that. If the house is small so that there is no room available for this display at the wedding, the presents are shown on the day before, and intimate friends are especially asked to come in for tea and to view them. This is not done if they are to be displayed at the wedding. Very intimate friends seldom need to be asked, the chances are they will come in often to see what has come since they were in last. Wedding presents are all sent to the bride, and are, according to law, her personal property. Articles are marked with her present, not her future, initials. Mary Smith, who is going to marry Jim Smartlington, is fortunate, as M.S. stands for her future as well as her present name. But in the case of Muriel Jones, who is to marry Ross, not a piece of linen or silver in Ross House will be marked otherwise than M.J. It is one of the most senseless customs. All her life, which will be as Muriel Ross, she uses linen and silver marked with a J. Later on, many people who go to her house, especially as Ross comes from California, where she will naturally be living, will not know what J stands for, and many even imagine that the linen and plate have been acquired at auction. Sounds impossible? 
It has happened more than once. Occasional brides who dislike the confusing initials especially ask that presents be marked with their marriage name. The groom receives few presents. Even those who care about him in particular, and have never met his bride, send their present to her, unless they send two presents, one in courtesy to her, and one in affection to him. Occasionally some one does send the groom a present, addressed to him and sent to his house. Rather often friends of the groom pick out things particularly suitable for him, such as cigar or cigarette boxes, or rather masculine-looking desk sets, etc., which are sent to her but are obviously intended for his use. Exchanging Wedding Presents Some people think it discourteous if a bride changes the present chosen for her. All brides exchange some presents, and no friend should allow their feelings to be hurt, unless they are very close to the bride and have chosen the present with particular sentiment. A bride never changes the presents chosen for her by her or the groom's family, unless especially told that she may do so. But to keep twenty-two salt cellars and sixteen silver trays, when she has no pepper-pots or coffee-spoons or platters or vegetable dishes, would be putting sentiment above sense. End of chapter 21, part 1